0: we're in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in chapter two. We're looking at the church at Pergamos and that's verses 12 through 17. So please, if you'd like, open your Bible there or uh, navigate on your device. You can also go to calvaryhanford.com transcripts and follow along with the transcript itself. However, you want to receive God's word this morning uh, in a way that would be a blessing to you. The topic in these verses, Jesus tells the believers in Pergamos that Satan is living in their city. The title of our message, Please Don't You Be My Neighbor. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for this gathering of believers. It's So exciting, Lord, to get together with other folks who are just hungry for your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, there would be anointed uh, teaching here. Uh, And by that, I mean that the Holy Spirit who is here would take your word and apply it to our lives. We certainly want to learn about Pergamos and what was going on. We want to have knowledge, Lord, of the scripture itself uh, and and, uh, have a a good handle on that. But we also want you to to penetrate our hearts with application. And Lord, we know that you're here in our midst because you said you would be. Uh, You promised you would walk in the midst of your candlestick, in the midst of your church. And so, Lord, we we pray that we would tremble with excitement, uh, knowing that you love us so much and that you care for us beyond measure. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I'll name the neighbors, you name the show. Okay, a little participation here to get us going. Fred and Ethel Mertz. Ed and Trixie Norton. Honeymooners, sorry, don't be shy. If you're wrong, you'll have to leave, but don't be. <laughs> Barney and Betty Rubble. Lenny and Squiggy. Ned Flanders. Wilson W. Wilson Jr. All right. One more to show that I'm on the cutting edge. Agnes. Oh, WandaVision. WandaVision. Yes, a couple of you got it. All right. Not that I watch that, but uh, there's nothing wrong with WandaVision, maybe. While the majority of television neighbors are rather likable, movie neighbors can be your worst nightmare. You can probably think of a film in which the neighbor turned out to be anyone but Fred Rogers. I would submit Lars Thorwald in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window with an honorable mention going to the Klopex in The Burbs. The believers in the church in Pergamos had a supremely undesirable neighbor. Who was their neighbor? As the church lady would say, Satan. (laughs) You guys remember the church lady? There was a sweet, sweet lady in our church here at Calvary Hanford years ago who looked just like the church lady and and had that same kind of purity, you know. And so one time I felt led, I thought, to... (laughs) to mention the church lady to her and she of course was so holy she had never even seen it and then somebody showed it to her and she uh, she wasn't as holy in that moment as i remember but <laughs> jesus said in verse 13 where you dwell satan dwells the devil had his throne there it was not a good day in the neighborhood with satan going about singing won't you be mine satan wasn't only living in their city though he was attending their church Not personally, but through certain false teachers he had equipped. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Lord wanted the believers to take action against these individuals. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, hold fast and you reveal Jesus enthroned. And number two, hold loosely and you reveal Satan enthroned. Verses 12 and 13, uh, revealing Jesus. There are two symbols that are used to represent medicine. You would recognize them immediately. The caduceus is a symbol with a short staff entwined by two serpents. The rod of Asclepius is the one with a single serpent. I just like saying that, Asclepius. It's one of those, I know I'm going to mispronounce it now that I'm making a big deal about it. But, but, Serpents. Isn't it weird? I mean, doesn't that strike you as weird? Why medicine? Why serpents? Well, it reaches back through the centuries to Roman and Greek mythology. Pergamos was especially known for its temple to Asclepius, the god of medicine. People from all over the world traveled to Pergamos hoping to be healed. The method for healing was quite unorthodox. William Barclay writes the following, Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple, there were lay, uh, tame snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which he lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch was held to bring health and healing. As Indiana Jones would say, why does it always have to be snakes? <laughs> Satan was similarly slithering around the church, seeking to touch the believers, not for healing, but for havoc and for harm. And so verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The revelation that John wrote out on a scroll was carried from city to city, church to church in the region we know today as Turkey. It would be read aloud by the angel of the church. Angel is a word that just means messenger. Strong's concordance comments that it implies the pastor. He would be the one most natural one to read this to the church and he would read more than the letter. He would read the entire scroll of revelation, but certainly uh, they would pay attention to this particular letter to themselves. John gave a detailed description of Jesus in chapter one. We read that out of his mouth, went a sharp two edged sword, that observation is now edited by the Holy spirit to read he who has the sharp two edged sword. You've probably seen a representation of Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Have you seen that picture? It's a famous one that comes out of the Jesus movement, Uh, but you can find it. It's it's just kind of a wacky uh, fantasy picture of Jesus. Uh, Are we to take this literally? And of course, we would say no, but why not? Because we're the literalists. We've been making a big deal about taking everything in Revelation literally unless there's a reason not to. So what is the reason? Well, we've mentioned before how dependent the revelation is on Old Testament references. And we've said that Jews would understand references that we miss because of our lack of Old Testament familiarity. A Jew, upon hearing about a sharp sword coming out of the mouth, would remember Isaiah 49, verse 2, where it says, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Other translations include, he made my words like a sharp sword, And he gave me speech that would cut and penetrate. Now, if you read the entire Isaiah passage, you'll see that it is describing God's suffering servant, the Messiah who would save Israel. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And so when Jesus described himself as the person with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the Jew would understand he was claiming to be the Old Testament prediction of the Messiah whose words would be penetrating and powerful. And so no, Jesus doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth. It is a well-known expression for the power of the speech of the savior. And it's the perfect attribute of Jesus for Pergamos because the words of these false teachers needed to be dealt with sharply by the sword of the word. And so we have these descriptions of Jesus in chapter one. And then one of the, he borrows from that And says now to the church at Pergamos, here's the description that is most apt for you because of your situation. So it's a brilliant narrative. And so he says in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. The words your works do not appear in the best manuscripts that we translate the Bible from the emphasis here is on knowing where they dwelt, where they lived. And not just the city, because that's obvious. Jesus was letting the saints know that their city was ground zero for the devil. Pergamos was Satan's throne. It seems that the nations of the world have angels, both good and fallen, that are assigned to them behind the scenes of what we, can, uh, what we observe. In the book of Daniel, a mighty fallen angel called the Prince of Persia detained the angel Gabriel from coming to Daniel. And so Daniel was dispatched to answer Gabriel's prayer face to face and give him what would probably the greatest prophecy in the Bible, the Daniel 70 weeks. But on the way, he when he got to Persia, the Prince of Persia, obviously a supernatural being, withstood him 21 days, they Wrestled, or they insulted each other, or they threw rocks at each other, whatever angels do to fight each other. I I have no idea. Uh, And and finally, uh, Gabriel was able to leave when Michael showed up and took over for him. And speaking of Michael, we're told in Daniel that uh, he is the great prince who stands watch over Israel. And so Michael the archangel is especially involved with the nation of Israel as their protector. Calvary Hanford, Probably has a protector and angel. Somebody came up afterwards and said, "I know who it is. It's Clarence." <laughs> if you were really on it, you would have rang a bell right then. But I should have told you. I came up with it just now. Satan is the god of this world, and it's logical that he would have a headquarters. It's probably not where we think. I mean, if, if I polled people, I'd say, "Where do you think Satan's headquarters? Ah, oh, Las Vegas, <laughs> New York." Uh, Pattaya in Thailand or, you know, there's certain places you identify with maybe greater wickedness. None of you well, we might, we might say I'm going to take a shot and say it's Riverdale. <laughs> Anybody live in Riverdale? Raise your hand so we can pray for you. I have a special prayer afterwards, but I've been making fun of Riverdale for 35 years and I'm not going to stop. You can't stop me. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. The Bible tells us uh, nothing more about Antipas. I want so bad to say Antipasto, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was an impressive one-verse wonder. Faced with pressure to deny Jesus or deny, or die a violent death, Antipas chose to die a martyr And the believers in Pergamos stood with him, willing also to become martyrs themselves. Martyrdom seems a triumph for evil. Looking back on church history, we see that it is, in fact, a victory for the Lord every time. You probably already know that the word martyr means witness. We who are in Christ are all witnesses who, by holding fast to Jesus, could someday become martyrs, the ultimate witness. Or is it? It can be harder to live for Jesus than to die for him. Now, I freely admit I am not the most qualified Christian to say that. So I'm going to cut you off there. You're already thinking, how can you say that? I can't. But Sadhu Sundar Singh can say it. He is credited as the first missionary to cross the Himalayan mountains to take the gospel to Nepal and Tibet. I didn't do that. One source said he was known as the apostle with the bleeding feet. For he walked far and long. At 36 years of age, he made his last trip over the mountains. He never returned and is assumed by some to have been a martyr for the Lord. In his diary, left behind, he had written, It is easy to die for Christ. It is hard to live for him. Dying takes only a few minutes or at worst an hour or two. But to live for Christ means to die daily to myself. Beloved, in our daily lives, we have opportunities to show the world that Jesus is on the throne, so to speak. All we have to do is die to self. So the question is, where do you and I need to die to ourselves and thereby reveal Jesus enthroned? Talk to the Lord about that. Uh, We'll have time at the end of the service for you. Verses 14 through 17, hold loosely and you reveal Satan enthroned. Sauron was defeated largely because of Gandalf's hidden strategy to destroy the one ring of power. With the good guys coming at the bad guys head on, the great eye of Beradur was kept distracted until it was too late. Satan was employing a similar strategy in Pergamos. As the bad guy, he came at the believers head on. He killed Antipas. But while the saints were faithfully enduring a direct assault, the serpent had secretly slithered into their midst. Satan is always playing the long game. A lot of things are gonna happen in your life that, you, you know, that are gonna be trials and tribulations and afflictions and sufferings and things like that. And you're gonna get through them. You're gonna learn your lesson and move on and all. There is always a long game sinister strategy against you. And that's, you can't know what it is that's the whole idea if you knew what it was you would do something about it but because you know it's coming uh you can stay prepared for it you can do just the basic christian things you can uh you know break bread continue in the uh, doctrine and fellowship and in prayer Uh, and you need to because you, you need to be ready for when it comes um over the years you've seen this in people's lives where everything seemed to be going all right or they had you know the normal trials and stuff and then all of a sudden something hit that was so weird and so sinister and so devious that it just blew your mind and uh, those that were prepared uh, their marriages endured their relationships endured, those kinds of things so be prepared verse 14 I have a few things against you because you have there who hold the doc, uh, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. They were there not just in the city but in the meetings of the church. Balaam's story is recorded in chapters 22 through 24 of the Old Testament book Numbers. The nation of Israel was marching from Egypt to the Promised Land, No Gentile nation could withstand them on their journey as they walked with God. They were invincible. King Balak of Moab was terrified. He sent for a Gentile seer named Balaam to employ him to curse the nation of Israel. Three times Balaam tried to curse them, but each time God overcame him, and the words he spoke blessed them instead. It's if it wasn't so serious, it's comical when you read through this story. Unable to curse them, but still desiring the money that Balak had offered him, Balaam counseled Balak how he might stop the march of the Jews. Balaam understood that the only way to defeat them was to entice them to sin against God. Then God would step in and he would discipline them himself. Balaam told Balak to send the temple priestesses into the camp of Israel to seduce the Jewish men, into celebrating their pagan feast of Baal Peor. The feast involved idolatry, of course, obviously, but sexually immoral practices at the same time. The plan worked. The Israelite men worshiped idols, and they had sex with the priestesses as they did so. Their sin had devastating effects. God sent a plague into the camp of the Israelites as a discipline that killed 24,000 individuals. Jewish men were sinning openly. God was killing people, and no one was doing a thing about it. Then this happened. Numbers 25. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. So the man of Israel and the woman threw her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And so uh, one guy rose up and he said, Hey, this has to be dealt with in a way that is pleasing to God. Now these folks in Pergamos They didn't call themselves Balaamites. If, if, you know, you meet somebody new to church, you know, and you say, hey, you know what, what, what are you into? Or where are you from? He goes, we were just attending the church of Balaam. I'm a Balaamite. In fact, they didn't even call themselves Balaamites, obviously. But Jesus is exposing them by using the story from numbers. He says, hey, you have in there in your midst and you know who they are, individuals that are teaching that it's okay to do these practices Let me tell you a story about them from the Old Testament. They are little Balaams in your midst. And so you've got them scattered in your fellowship. What were the Pergamos Balaamites promoting? Well, he tells us here, just like uh, Balaam, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. A portion of the food, the meat especially, served in the various temples was first offered in sacrifice to the God of that temple. And the worship of the gods always involves sexually immoral practices. The influence of the Balaamites was to tell the saints that it was fine, even more mature, to go ahead and visit the pagan temples. Go ahead, eat the sacrifice meat. You can watch the sexual immorality. It's not going to bother you because you're not part of it. Uh, Ultimately, if you engage in some of that, what's the big deal? And so this was their doctrine. Now the problem was, you're thinking, well, just stay out of the temple. But the problem was compounded because food was served all the time in the temples, not just in religious rituals. There were food booths and restaurants. And in fact, uh, the best food in town was served in these temple restaurants. So in those days, you didn't go to McDonald's. You went to Dionysus or to Bacchus King. Poseidon Hut. <laughs> Kronos Jr. Molek Filet. Little Caesars. <laughs> or my favorite, Taco Bale. <laughs> I would have finished the study this week if I hadn't spent 10 hours on those names, but... <laughs> The temple food was superb, but it was food that had been offered to an idol leading to idolatry and sexual sin. Is the church today under assault from within by Balaamites? Well, let me preface my remarks by quoting from Genesis so we have a biblical basis. Genesis 1.47, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created uh, him. Male and female, he created them. And then from Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are two genders, male and female. Marriage is one biological male and one biological female in an exclusive heterosexual monogamous covenant of companionship for as long as they both shall live. A quick look at the fount of all knowledge, Wikipedia, identifies 22 denominations in North America, both Protestant and Catholic, that currently affirm the LGBTQ agenda. They no longer acknowledge that homosexuality or transgender identity are sexual sins. It didn't occur overnight. Balaamites slithered into the North American denominations. Unlike the snakes in the Temple of Asclepius, these snakes turned out to be deadly poisonous. Where does that lead? The Australian province of Victoria has criminalized prayer. That seeks to change a person's sexual orientation, the offense is punishable by imprisonment for up to ten years. UK activists are lobbying for similar legislation, and I just throwing this out there, uh, it's going to be coming our way soon. And so, uh, we are involved in the same kinds of struggle that the church has always been involved in. And you know, we don't bring this up to to diss any individual. We we love individuals. We want Like the Lord, we're not willing to see any perish, but that they would have eternal life. But you you can't let false teaching into your church because it leads down the road to something awful. And so verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Page after page has been written on who these guys are and what they believe to no avail in solving exactly what they believed and taught. If somebody's told you exactly what they believed and taught, they, they went with a theory, not a fact. We just don't know. I think it's a good thing we don't know more about them because if we did, we'd concentrate on their particular doctrine, their teaching. Instead, we can kind of see them as a placeholder for any and all false teaching that might come against the church. And, and so that's, a, 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 I think, a deliberate thing on the part of the Lord so that we just get the idea, hey, there are going to be people like this and you are going to need to deal with it. Uh, you know, I, uh, first service I was reminded, and, and I'll, I'll mention it here, church needs to be a safe place spiritually, okay? There are lots of churches, unfortunately, even uh, Christian churches, they're just not safe because there's lots of weird things going on. Winds of doctrine are blowing through. The individuals are factious. Uh, they've you know, moved <coughs> into different positions that they uh, hold uh, you know, that, that aren't normal, whatever it may be. And so you need to have a place that's safe, uh, where you feel safe spiritually, where you're going to hear the word of God taught and, and, and where you can bring friends and family. Uh, I've, you know, I've talked to people over the years who say, yeah, we used to go to this other church, but we didn't feel like we could ever bring our family there. And I thought, well, that's weird, right? You know? so, so hopefully we, you know, we, we work hard to be a safe place, uh, you know, to, to just be what God wants us to be on that level. Uh, now, is it always safe in church? Well, no, because there are people there. And there are people over the years, we've had different people from time to time in various strengths, try and draw people away to certain doctrines or teachings or whatever it is they were into. And uh, we've had to deal with it in one way or the other, because church, you, you need to be able to feel safe and uh, your family feel safe, spiritually speaking. Here's a quote on the subject of tolerance back uh, into, you know, talking about this other issue. The original definition of tolerance and the way in which the word is used now quite different. Originally tolerance meant to acknowledge that others have differing beliefs and to accept that it is their right to do so in this way christians are to absolutely be tolerant recently tolerance has come to mean accepting that those other beliefs are true something christians absolutely cannot do and so over the years you know we're very tolerant we say you know i accept your right to believe that and i accept your right to be wrong that's not a problem but we, have, we can have a discussion about it. We say, you know, we're, we're not afraid of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is what? It is the power of God unto salvation. And so you want to come with your weird belief or your strange twist. Uh, let, we'll talk about it. I'll put you in a room with Jacob Kelso and he'll blow your mind, you know, and, and then he'll tag out and some of the other boys can come in. But uh, we're, we'll go against that. That's how, and we'll have a decent discussion about it. I think you've noticed... In our society today the people that don't like what we say are not so kind about it. They're not really they are intolerant of our position. And so in Australia, hey, you want to pray for people who think they're transgender to become normal again, we're going to put you in jail for 10 years. That's not an opinion, that's that's what's going to happen. I footnoted the article by the way, I'm not making it up. So he says in verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The saints were tolerating sin in the church until then, and there was no Phinehas to wield God's word against them. Remember in the number story, they're all Moses and the guys are, oh, what do we do? We're weeping in front of the tabernacle. And Phinehas says, I know what to do. I'm going to kill somebody. We're going to end this right now. There's a very strong distinction here between you, the believers, and them, the false teachers. The believers should do something about them or else the Lord would come and do something about them. Now, you might think, that's great. Let the Lord handle it. But that isn't how we ought to think. The Apostle Paul urged the factious believers in Corinth to set things in order before he arrived. He said this, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? or in love and a spirit of gentleness. And so Paul says, hey, I I wanna come and just enjoy your fellowship and and teach you and just you know share in the Lord's Supper and all of these things. But you guys are so out there right now with your factions and your fighting and you're suing each other and the immorality you're allowing in the church. Please deal with that so I don't have to. Because if I have to, it's going to be pretty serious. And so do it. And so the saints in Pergamos ought to repent by immediately doing something about the problem. Otherwise the Lord would, but it probably would also involve a rod of discipline. So verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. He who has an ear, means the things in these letters are for any believer, any time. What the Spirit says to the churches means that the things in each letter are for any church, any time. Him who overcomes is not a super saint. In one of his letters in the New Testament, John says a born again believer in Jesus is an overcomer. Some of your Bibles say uh, they are just someone who is victorious. The average everyday believer in Jesus Christ can count on some things in the future, First of all, he or she can count on some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, you'll remember that manna was the bread that fell from heaven, which fed the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The hidden manna refers to the manna that was put in the Ark of the Covenant that was covered by the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies in the wilderness tabernacle. So if you were to eat some of the hidden manna, you would have to be in God's temple, you would have to be in his very presence in the Holy of Holies. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is that at any moment, the church could be in heaven, in God's temple. We're gonna see that in chapters four and five. With that in mind, the idea that I'm gonna be in heaven in my new body, eating whatever the manna is there and just enjoying life, why am I so insistent about indulging my flesh in the temples of this world And and, you know, you know, a lot of people, when you, you say, hey, you know, this practice in your life, it's right on the edge of, of, you know, I know you have the liberty to do it, but it's right on the edge of really being, you know, sinful. That's my liberty. I do whatever I want. All right, let's calm down. One day you'll be in heaven. You can eat manna. It's going to be satisfying. This is bread that only satisfies your flesh. Let's have some bread that satisfies the spirit. So that's what the Lord is getting at. You remember the wilderness wandering Jews grew tired of eating only manna. So can we. In our case, the manna is God's word. We can tend to want to add ingredients to it, ingredients that we pick up from the world. Years ago, I would use as an illustration, still a good illustration, but it was more prevalent, uh, pop psychology. It was a big movement in the church to bring pop psychology into the church and to redefine words like redemption and repentance with modern psychological terms. You have to be careful with the ingredients of the world. I was thumbing through an old recipe book. I came across one recipe that called for ammonia. Have you ever seen that? Ammonia? Well, you're probably smarter than me. There is a kind of ammonia that is used in baking. It's ammonium carbonate. And you would have known that 50 years ago, and so they could have, all they had to do is say ammonia, and you weren't stupid enough to add ammonia. <laughs> now, don't worry, I didn't kill anybody. I substituted mineral spirits. And the world that Satan is God over urges you to add its ingredients. That's a major strategy of the devil to bring the world into the church with its methodology and its, its uh, you know, different, you know, uh, rules and regulations. And we need to resist that. Christian con carnal, not good. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Apparently it was common to use little stones the way we use tickets. Think of it like having a wristband or a hand stamp that allows you access to an event. The ultimate invitation, the capital E coupon is our invitation to the future marriage supper of Jesus that believers are going to attend as his bride. We'll see that at the end of this book as well. Uh, my mom used to tell me junk food would ruin my appetite for dinner. The junk food of the world system, Satan heads, it wants to ruin your spiritual appetite. One description of a Christian, hungry for the word of God, right? Because it's, it's our bread, it's our meat, it's our milk, it it's nourishes us spiritually. So if I find myself not hungry for the word of God, then I'm you know, I'm filling myself with other things, I guess. Uh, and so it's just a, one of those little tests that you can do. Anytime somebody comes, a lot of times people come, they visit the church, let's say, and they say, Yeah, you know, uh, this pastor or the word over there is just so boring. And, and it's like, Well, is he reading the Bible? Yeah. Is he commenting on the Bible? Yeah. Something's going on there because it's the power of God unto salvation. Can a person be boring? Sure. Jonathan Edwards, is pillar of, of American Christianity, revivals are happening all around him, crazy stuff. I read a, a little blurb in his biography the other day. He was the most boring person on the face of the earth. He had like two-hour sermons, and he would read them monotone. The ultimate invitation, the capital E coupon, is our invitation to the future marriage supper of Jesus that believers are going to attend as his bride. And of course, there was no... Uh, rarefied air, or, you know, it was, it was the early century and stuff. So, and, and so, uh, you know, if you're not hungry for God's word on some level, then deal with it. You know, get the junk food out of your life and, and get back to eating what's good. And on the stone, a new name written which no one knows except for him who receives it. Pretty common in the Bible for believers to be renamed. You can probably think of these four abram was renamed abraham sarai was renamed sarah and jacob was renamed israel and then of course in the new testament jesus told simon he would be called peter you probably have an endearing pet name for the one you love and by the way that was our valentine's day portion of the message right there (laughs) happy valentine's day see how it dovetailed in just perfectly though a lot of you do have a, an endearing pet name for the one that you love, and others may know that name because you might use it, but it's a name no one else is really allowed to use. If I start calling your wife by her pet name, not good. Yeah, so let's just be careful, all right? It's a name no one else is allowed to use. But see, you know what's going on here? Jesus says, I have a special pet name for you, for everybody. In uh, my family growing up, my weird family, uh, I was genie for some reason. And uh, my uh, oldest brother, Anthony, we called him Ant, A-N-T. My next oldest brother was called Rock. Uh, He was named after Rock Bottom from the Felix the Cat show. And then unfortunately, my youngest brother was called Whale Boy because he was extremely heavy. And uh, my parents thought that it was a reverse psychology that's the only psychology we knew then it was reverse psychology so if i call you a whale you're going to want to be a minnow and um what it did was turn him into a dinosaur but anyway it was just so those were endearing pet names you know so nobody else called, hey ant, you know hey hey rock you know that kind of thing and uh so but jesus has a name for you i i, I just I just should have read that this morning and just sat down and we could have had worship. I mean, that's the coolest thing I've heard in a long time. I can't wait to find out what my pet name is. I don't care what it is, but I bet it's going to be something just perfect, right? Obviously, because nobody knows me like Jesus. And and it's going to be just perfect. I can't wait to get there. Satan was not only their nemesis. He's trying to kill more believers like he did Antipas. He was their neighbor. He came to church. As I said, we don't know where his throne is today. It's probably not where we'd guess. Doesn't matter because we're not told to try to discover it or to do anything to assail it. Our warfare is right in front of us. If you are in Christ, you desire to see Jesus enthroned. Remember the words of Sundar Singh: Dying takes only a few minutes or at worst an hour or two, but to live for Christ means to die daily to myself. Let's pray.